And I'm really delighted to welcome um, Janice McLaughlin um, to give the first talk in this session. Janice is a professor of sociology at Newcastle University. Um, his research is primarily focused on exploring how childhood disability or illness is framed from within the worlds of medicine, community, and family. And Janice is here today to deliver a talk to us um, entitled The Medical Reshaping of Disabled Bodies as a Response to Stigma and a Route to Normality. Thanks very much for um, inviting me today. Um, I really like sessions like this where all the papers are kind of connecting and communicating with each other, so it's a real pleasure um, to be here. I'll stand to the side as long as you can still hear me. It's hear me or see me, it's kind of what do you prefer. Um, so we'll go for a mix. Um, it's also nice to be here because for some awful reason, I'm not quite sure I'm head of department at the minute, uh, so this is a real treat to actually talk about research rather than other things just now. Um, so I'm going to be drawing from a project we were involved with, um, a specific project working with disabled young people in the northeast, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a sense of, of that uh, in a minute, but I'll try and kind of frame it first. Um, so we're sort of broadly taking a kind of sociological approach to thinking about issues of stigma. Um, the project wasn't designed around those themes, but when you're engaging with disability, issues of shame and stigma kind of can come up quite readily. Um, so obviously notions of stigma and shame being a kind of particular key concept within sociology, it went through a little bit of a dip for a while, um, but it's interestingly coming back as people are feeling that the sort of focus on, on culture and discourse was perhaps kind of um, clouding our interest in interaction and practice. And in some ways, what I'm interested in is embodiment practices that flow from dynamics of shame and stigma. I think it's also worth saying that the things that I'll be talking about today, um, I'm not saying that the young people's involvement in medical intervention is only about shame and stigma. There's other aspects um, that influence their engagement with medical intervention that we've written about elsewhere. Uh, but for here, fitting in with, with the topic today, um, focusing in on these issues of stigma. Um, so a bit of a whirlwind tour about how we kind of decided to kind of focus on some of the data in this way. Um, obviously, disability studies has emerged as a very important field for engaging with disability. And one of the things that they did um, as a kind of key marker of what was different from other ways of understanding disability was actually to move away from a consideration of the body um, and to see that as risky, as problematic, because there, it, you could fall into a kind of medical model understanding of disability and seeing the body is inherently vulnerable, weak, tragic, etc. Um, so they took the gaze out to the social, to thinking about the social environment is that which disables the body. Um, and that has been a very important and a very useful uh, strategy. It's still significant and important to push on those angles. Um, but what I want to try and make the case for is the need to draw, as others are, draw the body into considerations of disability. For, same, for the same reasons that disability studies, in a way, did not want to talk about the body, because I think it does generate questions about rights, about discrimination, about questions of social justice. And we take a particular approach which draws from symbolic interactionism, who within sociological circles have been one of the key kind of disciplinary framings for understanding issues of shame and stigma. Um, and what they're interested in is trying to think about 
the significance of how our bodies move and interact in the world for our position in the world, for our social position, our rights of opportunity, the recognition we have as a valued member of society, etc. Um, and that what disability does is trouble those interactions because bodies move in different ways, voices speak in different ways, people communicate in different ways, minds think and operate in different ways, that those differences trouble interactions and stigma flows from that troubling of interaction. So it's thinking about the ways in which how bodies function and move and interact is significant to someone's place in the world, as I've said. Um, and we want to kind of hold on to the body as socially significant in its material dynamic as well as its cultural or representational dynamic, but to see the body as significant to these questions that are very important uh, in relation to disability about people's access to rights, to citizenship, um, to freedom, and saying that there are hierarchies of bodily value within society, and that those hierarchies of bodily value kind of, again, feed their way into issues of symbolic interaction, uh, and trying to work through those logic through that. So it's kind of trying to kind of bring the body into considerations of both kind of questions of those public issues, but also issues of the self, issues of identity, and how interaction also becomes a part of how we both hold ourselves in an identity, challenge identities given to us by others, develop our identities over time. And we're working very much with young people in this project, so one of the themes that it's explored more broadly within the project is issues of transition. These are young people moving towards adulthood, and it's that move towards adulthood that influences greatly their engagement with medical intervention, and hopefully some of that will come out this afternoon. Um, so what she sort of used this concept of sticky encounters, which Davis uh, talked about back in 1961. Um, so as I've mentioned, kind of what is of significance to symbolic interaction is the way in which kind of interactions kind of don't feel quite right. Uh, and they don't feel quite right because one party to that interaction isn't behaving, acting, speaking like the norm. Um, and this, a lot of this will echo back to some things that were being talked about this morning, that there are certain norms of interaction we have in particular spaces, with particular types of people, with particular categories of people, um, and disability can be one of those things that makes those encounters more difficult. And in Davis's words, sticky, because the, the norm, the usual, the habit isn't quite there. And then someone has to adapt. And the problem from a disability perspective is the person doing the adapting is the disabled person who tries to make their speech clearer, who tries to, to hold back the twitches in their body, who tries to protect and hide the fact that they're drilling. It's a sense of them adapting to those social norms that tell them that if they carry on doing that, they won't be quite as recognised as one of us, as others would. Um, so it's a sense of kind of both those interactions as well as being affected affecting the disabled person, they can also affect those around them. So sort of one of the kind of classic, again, concepts and sort of Goffman's stigma ideas is the notion of courtesy stigma. That you are, if you are with someone who is seen as stigmatized, then you also obtain that stigma as well. And it's one of the big themes in sort of disability work around family and disabled children is that that stigmatizing dynamic spreads out across the family. Um, it is something we've actually critiqued in some of our, our, our other writing, but um, that's for another day, perhaps, or later discussion. 
So disabled children themselves are sometimes seen as actors within these dynamics of recognition and fit, of passing, as uh, some of the language goes. That they're doing this labor. Uh, one of my colleagues, Jackie Lee-Scully, talks about sort of hidden labor uh, that disabled people can work through, where they have to do lots of work to fit in with social norms, but that work must be hidden. Um, it's that it appears effortless that that person isn't trying to um, maintain their speech, it's just that they have good speech. So that, that hidden labour is something that a variety of actors are involved with, including disabled children and young people themselves. And when they're doing that kind of labour to pass as normal, Garland Thompson talks about that as a process which is about repairing the fabric of the relation so that it can continue. And i.e. that the normal person is made calmer, relaxed, okay, because someone else is doing the work of making that interaction possible. But one of the things to also engage with, and we'll try to talk through some of the findings bit, is that this isn't always kind of a process of passing, of normalisation, of fitting in. There's also moments, dynamics, practices of resistance, of challenge to those notions of normality. And I'm going to give one example near the end of that. Um, so one of the, the arguments within medical sociology is that, and disability studies, is that one of the solutions to the sticky encounter, one of the ways in which you're able to pass, is that you go through a series of medical interventions that help you pass, that help your speech, that help your gait, that help your walk, that help you use cutlery properly. And those medical interventions can be a variety of things. They can be surgery, they can be physiotherapy, they can be speech and language therapy, etc. Um, and this is where the sort of notion of medicalization is sometimes used within both medical sociology and disability studies. Uh, they argue that the problem with that is that the social concerns about why does someone have to operate in that sort of way to be accepted aren't challenged. That instead medicine becomes another actor saying to people, if you want to fit in society, if you want to participate, then here are the things, the stages you could you should go through in order that your body will fit those norms. Um, and there's various uh, different debates and writings around parents' involvement in that when children are young um, and parents are making decisions about their participation in surgery, etc. And again, as we talked about this morning, these are, not that, these are very sort of blurred boundaries here between surgeries and interventions that are about reducing pain enabling people to swallow, enabling people to eat, enabling uh, longevity of life. But there are these boundary cases where the surgery is also, or the other forms of intervention, where is the line of clinical therapy and in a sense a social therapy that's aiming to match a body to a social norm in an attempt to avoid stigma. Um, so in some sense kind of medicine has been seen as having a kind of privileged position in dictating these norms and in some sense being productive of certain norms. So the more, as we were talking about this morning, that if medicine enables us to do certain things um, better, then it becomes the norm somehow to use medicine to do those things better. And you're seen as not doing your bit if you don't quite follow along with those opportunities. And that can be from taking vitamin pills to, 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 to surgery. Um, but I want to sort of problematize that a little bit, as sometimes I think giving medicine too much power uh, and then assuming that patients of whatever age, whatever social background, etc., will simply go in and do what medicine says. Uh, the medicine is, again, this, you know, this kind of massive institution that tells us 
this one set of ways of understanding things and we go along and we, we agree and we follow what it says. I think that's problematic for, for the version of medicine it produces and problematic for the version of the patient uh, and the people around them that it produces. So the way in which we sort of think about medicine and this project and others as being a multiple set of practices, multiple set of actors um, that is in the world, that is in the social world. Um, so that when a patient or their family or someone comes into a clinic, that world comes with them. Um, so that these are complex interactions, both at these everyday levels of how people engage with each other. And we spend a lot of time doing observations of clinical settings. Um, but they're also part of a broader social world where these norms are coming from. These norms are not necessarily set. Medicine is playing a role in setting some of these norms. But those norms and those disciplinary effects are kind of emerging across a whole wide variety of social and cultural dynamics, including family itself as being part of that. So our interest is in the sort of interactions between patients, those close to them, different medical actors, different medical technologies, institutional spaces, etc., and how understandings and practices emerge within those spaces, within those interactions. So I want to try and kind of make that a little bit more concrete uh, in terms of things that we've looked at by talking about this one particular project and exploring how a particular group of disabled young people that we worked with kind of engaged with medical intervention, not assuming they're either completely free agents making choices for themselves or that they're simply passively going along doing what parents tell them or carers tell them or medical actors tell them. So a little bit about the study, um, body transitions towards uh, adulthood, and in a sense, the, the, the larger landscape we're interested in is the sort of processes of aging. Um, a, because we're all aging all of the time, but one of the dynamics that came through quite strongly in the project was that the disabled young people's concept of aging was um, quickened. Uh, they talked a lot about kind of issues about trying to manage their bodies now, because of what would happen when they were 40 or they were 50. So it's a sense of their experiencing of the aging dynamic was a faster one, a quicker one, a pacier one, and they had to think through issues because of that. Um, funded by the ESRC, it's not just me, it's a range of, of people who are involved in different aspects of the project, um, in particular Edmund, who was the research associate working with me on the project. Um, so we worked with, um, in a good qualitative style, a small group of people, 17 disabled young people aged between 14 and 20, mix of uh, young men and young women. Uh, they were from, the, the kind of way that we linked into this particular group is they're part of a broader longitudinal cohort study uh, run across Europe called Sparkle. Uh, and in Sparkle they were first interviewed when they were eight and 12, between 8 and 12 years old. And at that time, there was both quantitative survey work done, but also qualitative work done as well. Um, we wanted to broaden the sample out a little bit in terms of processes of recruitment. So there was a core who were, had been part of that Sparkle process, and then an additional small number of, of four people who were also um, had the same disability, but were, were recruited through a different route. Um, they all have cerebral palsy, which is the particular um, diagnostic category that's examined within the Sparkle work. Um, most of them had been, of those that had been in Sparkle, had had the qualitative interview done, and we had access to that qualitative material from their childhood. Um, the process itself was first uh, a broadly narrative interview, 
but we also brought along sections of their child interview, if there was one, to talk about the kind of differences and similarities of who they were now in comparison to where they were in the past. We also did some photography work with them where we asked them um, to take photographs on particular themes um, and we either gave them equipment if they wanted or if they preferred to use existing equipment, which the vast majority did, uh, then they used equipment they had, photographs they had, various different sources, and they put them together as journals. And I'm going to use some of the photographs uh, in the discussion that follows. We also had, near the end of the project, a small group came together and we did some kind of collective creative practice around making artifacts, but um, I'm not using that today, so I'll, I'll not talk about that, but if you want to hear more about that later, happy to. Uh, and then also, because we had the Sparkle interviews, there was the kind of comparative work uh, with their childhood interviews. So I'm going to talk through some of the themes uh, that came through. First is was that medical interventions uh, for these young people with cerebral palsy was a very, very normal part of their life, uh, was something some talked about it, it as like, I can't remember the first surgery. Um, so from the time they had been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, there had been a series of medical interventions uh, throughout their childhood uh, and going into adolescence, which we'll talk about in a moment. And there could be a variety of things that there was different interventions involved. Um, it was physiotherapy, it was doing things to muscles, doing things to nerve endings, doing things to bones, putting things in, taking things out. Um, and Sarah, um, captures that sort of dynamic of the sort of rolling process of surgical intervention quite well here. Um, I had four. First one was putting plates in my knees, putting cowboy into my foot. The second was putting wire into my foot, taking the wire out, or taking the wire out it was. So I'd wire put in my foot, taken out. Third one was having my tendons stretched from my hip to my foot. I've got this big scar on the back of my leg. That was quite sore, but I got it over and done with. And the fourth one was taking the plates out. So this kind of regular recurrence of these interventions. And um, when, would you finish sort of giving that narration? Um, we asked, what, why? What were those medical interventions about? And she replied, to make me look normal. Um, so there was a sense that they were aware that these interventions were happening for a variety of reasons. There was awareness that there was questions about pain uh, and functionality. But there was also within them a sense of straightening legs, straightening arms, enabling things to ankles to sit properly so that the foot would touch the ground. And that these things would also, while sort of helping movement, would also enable a more natural form of walking, more natural form of holding things. Now those things had begun in childhood but carried on into adolescence. Um, now Hannah here, um, in her journal and her photographs, um, had talked a great deal and represented a great deal how her memories of childhood were quite negative because they were memories of surgery, they were memories of being in hospital, they were memories of pain associated with surgery. And she had made a choice uh, sometime before uh, to stop being involved in these interventions that she felt she had enough, she didn't want to do this anymore, it was too interrupting to her life um, and she just wanted to carry on with things as they were. During the sort of lifetime of her project, she changed her mind uh, and went back and had, after consultations with doctors, with her parents, with people that she trusted, she decided to go back in and, and have surgery again. And she had surgery on both her arm and her leg. And that's a photograph of her leg uh, that she got, got taken um, after the surgery. And this was how she talked about why she made the decision to do it. 
It's not sorry. <coughs> it's not completely straight. Uh, they can't get it like yours. It was a really interesting dynamic um, of them comparing their body to the interviewer, who is primarily Edmund, who has all the appearances of an able-bodied young man. Um, and they were often saying, you know, either implicitly or at times explicitly, you're normal. My body isn't like that. Um, so not like yours. They can get it. It's too strong, but basically now it's like that. So she turned it a bit and made it more straight at the surgeon. Um, they can't get it to look normal. I won't get a normal foot, but to me it's more normal than it was, if you know what I mean. It doesn't look like your foot, but to me it's normal, because it's like other people's. Does that make sense? Um, she was talking about issues about pain. She was talking about issues about she was hoping this would keep her out of the wheelchair for longer. But this issue about looking more normal was something that she kept coming back to and various others in the project kept coming back to. So these patterns of intervention were ongoing. Um, and they were ongoing in a way where they were making decisions about it now that they were adolescents. <coughs> and they were not only making decisions about it as adolescents, they were participating in it as adolescents. Um, so it wasn't just about surgery, it was about daily physiotherapy. And it wasn't just about physiotherapy where the physiotherapist was standing there going, push your leg, do this, do that. It was doing physiotherapy in your house. It was doing physiotherapy on your own. And um, so this quote from Andrew kind of captures that. And again, he very embodied the dynamic. He was showing what he does every day to his body to try and keep it moving, to keep it um, functioning. Um, so Ed was asking him, what kind of uh, exercises do you do? Stretching, stretching the ankle, going on the, down bot on the bottom stairs and dropping my heel, all of these sorts of things, using the house as a form of physio, using it as a gym, in a sense. Um, and one of the other people that I'll, I'll talk about in a moment, um, he had developed a technique for using the stairs in his house as a form of physiotherapy. So he had very strong upper body strength, uh, but not much in his legs. So he used his arms to get up and down the stairs, but that was both enabling him to get up and down the stairs, but also was enabling him to maintain his upper body strength. So these dynamics with physiotherapy were very much something that they were doing, that they were incorporating into their everyday practice, and that their practices around doing this were embedded in goals about seeking to be normal, seeking to be recognised, and also about going into adulthood and thinking about what bodies they needed as they were moving towards adulthood. Um, and there was kind of particular versions of what normal adulthood were within those understandings of that. And they also talked a lot about their childhood experiences of bullying, of name-calling, of being pushed, you know, a whole range of pretty horrible things. And they were often counteracting that with the things that they were doing. And one sense what they also did was take great pleasure and pride in what they were doing to their bodies. You know, they were not passive, they were seeking to be active, they were seeking to be strong. They were the most active young people I've ever met. They were jogging, they were swimming, they were at the gym. There was this whole range of activities they were constantly involved in. Now everything I've sort of talked about so far has been the sense of kind of these medical interventions, feeding someone, pushing someone towards the goals of normality. And goals of normality that were sort of placing disability into the background, minimizing disability, seeing that as something that had to be overcome in order to be one normal to accept it and to escape those dynamics of stigma. 
want to give a counterexample to that, where the same technologies, the same actors, the same dynamics are involved, but in a process which foregrounds disability rather than backgrounds it, and foregrounds it as something valuable and positive. And we're doing that, what I'm wanting to suggest is it isn't inherent in medical practice or inherent in technology or inherent in what young people want, that everything is a goal around normality and avoiding stigma. Those same technologies and practices can do something very different because of the way they come together. And this is the example of Mark. Um, now Mark is the person who works very hard on the stairs in his house, going up and down to build up his upper body strength. And his upper body strength was particularly important for him because he was involved in wheelchair rugby at quite a high level. Um, Mark is not his real name, none of the names are, are the real names, I should have said. Um, so Mark was very involved uh, in wheelchair rugby and he was being trained up as someone potentially with the future, uh, pointing towards the Paralympics. Uh, and we were doing the, this work just after and during uh, the 2012 Paralympics, and that created quite an interesting context to some of the things that we were doing. Um, so Mark um, produced the biggest variety of photographs we had in the study, and it was his dad who, who took the photographs. And they were a statement about a young, masculine, fit, healthy, aggressive, active young man, where his disability was part of those things. Um, so one, some of the photographs these two that he took were where he'd been taken to a sports centre um, to do measurements on his lung capacity, to do measurements on various different aspects of his bodily abilities, and also to measure him up for a personalised wheelchair that would probably cost something over £1,000. So the same technology, the assistive technology of the wheelchair that most young people were spending a lot of their time seeking to avoid getting into, was in this context uh, turned into a technology of value and about a technology that valued the disability in a way because it was using the disability, it was in fitting this one particular disabled body to make it into a sports vehicle and to make it into a vehicle of an assertive and aggressive masculinities. So the same sort of technologies that might have been used in a hospital to measure his lung capacity, to do a blood tests, to do a whole range of things turned into this technology exploring what this disabled body could do, not for it to be overcome, but for it to be used, and to be used within the context um, of disability sport. It's not a completely resistant image or use of technologies, because there's still certain gendered norms, for example, embedded in this narrative. But I think it's just interesting to kind of show how the same technologies, the same practices can draw together to create quite different outcomes in terms of how disability is understood, recognised or indeed misrecognised. So to sum up, um, so I think yes the avoidance of stigma is one of the reasons why young people go along with particular types of medical interventions including ones that they themselves participate in. Um, so that there is self-discipline, there is um, self-monitoring, there is normalisation going within there, those concepts that get associated with notions of medicalisation. But I don't think that's the only story. Um, I think there are forms of productive agency that the young people are enacting, not just saying, enacting, doing, shaping a body. Um, and, and all those activities they're busily involved in and the pride that they take in it, there's an enactment that is something that generates agency, I think. All of our agency is situated and contingent, and it is for them too. 
Um, so they're not just going passively along with medicine, doing what it says that they should do, but thinking about which aspects they want to incorporate into their goals for the future. Their goals for the future are socially embedded, their goals for the future are influenced by what's out there, and for them in the North East it was, is an era of austerity and fear over whether they ever get a job. Um, futures about education, futures about having a family, futures where they are seeking independence and thinking that they can get it if they work through these processes. There's other stuff we've written around that, around citizenship and rights, which kind of uh, problematizes some of those ideas. Um, so therefore, their kind of interactions with medicine are embedded in the whole set of social, cultural, economic practices that are influencing what they're doing. It feeds very much into what was being talked about this morning um, and shapes into their embodied practices in the ways that I think are very interesting, alongside at times being troubling, but also very impressive at times. Um, but still the sense of who's doing the labor, who's doing the work of accommodation. Um, because part of that accommodation means participating in surgeries and th physiotherapies, etc., which are generative of pay, uh, which do interrupt daily life. So it's kind of seeing both those dynamics of agency there, but also those concerns about the labor they must, they apparently must undertake in order to be recognized in society. That's it, thank you.